Hello and welcome to Robin and Josie's Book Shambles, or Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. You're listening to the abridged version of this episode. If you'd like to hear the extended, uncut edition, you can, for as little as $1 a month, by pledging to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles Network. You'll get access to extended episodes of Book Shambles each week, as well as all sorts of other goodies like free tickets to our events, and so on, and so on, and etc. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. It's a forward slash, but you know that again. Welcome to another episode of Book Shambles. This is producer Trent. This week, our guest is someone who has joined us at Nine Lessons and Compendium quite a few times over the years. Professor John Butterworth uh, here to talk about his new book, uh, Map of the Invisible with Robin and Josie. But just before we get to that, thanks as always goes to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the show for as little as $1 a month. And also like to mention uh, a new thing that we've got up on the Cosmic Shambles Network site that started uh, a few days ago. Uh, Last year, Dr. Helen Chersky did a advent calendar throughout December. People sent in pictures of mundane, everyday life and she broke down some of the science that she found in those pictures. We're doing it again this year, but with Sea Shambles coming up at the Albert Hall on May 17, 2020. This year it has got an ocean theme, uh, some guest writers as well. So we've been asking people, uh, including some of you no doubt, have sent in pictures of uh, the sea and the ocean and all things ocean related with the hashtag Sea Shambles on Twitter. And that uh, advent has begun now. So go to cosmicshambles.com slash Sea Shambles Advent to read a new post each day about some of the science of the ocean, uh, stories of the ocean, all that sort of stuff. We've got stuff up there already about cuttlefish and uh, using chalk from uh, Cliffs of Dover to do art and all sorts of interesting things. So do go check that out. And of course, get tickets for Sea Shambles at the Albert Hall next year. Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People at King's Place is fast approaching. There are now very few tickets left. Uh, Some of the nights are sold out already. So go to cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons or the King's Place website for the last few tickets for those shows. Robin Ince hosting all of them guests like Josie Long, Lucy Green and Matt Parker and Connie Huck and Liz Bonin and Josh Idahan and lots of others. Go check that out. All proceeds, as always, go to charity. And we will be collecting for the Trussell Trust Again, at these shows, go to the website, find out the most urgently needed items from the Trussell Trust, stuff like toothbrushes and uh, tinned soup and things like that. It's ridiculous that we need food banks in Britain in 2019, uh, but that is where we are, so help out if you can. A quick thank you as well uh, to everyone that came to the first nine lessons in uh, Salford at the Lowry and everyone who came along to see Chaos of Delight, Robin's show on tour. Both of those are wrapped up now, so thanks for coming along to those. And now on to this week's episode. Here is Robin and Josie with John. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robbie's Book Shambles. We're joined by a man who uh, once, a long time ago, was the head of physics at UCL, but since then has just been hanging around his allotment, thinking about the universe, which is what physicists do. That's approximately right, isn't it, John Butterworth? Pretty much, yes. How's the season been, harvest-wise? The the, what? Are the allotment? 
Oh, the oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I was I was just humouring Robin. I haven't got any Robin. Oh, no, oh, yeah. oh, I had fifteen questions to ask. <laughs> no, the quarks oh, have been really very sorry. strange this year, but the the, the, the bottom What's quarks that? have not been sprouting at all. <laughs> the gluons. Um, this is what I find fascinating because you, you you've you've written. Uh, your your most recent book, Map of the Invisible, is trying to understand. I mean, this is you know when when I was growing up, when you were growing up, there, there were these nice little models made with lollipop sticks and what you know looked like little snooker balls, which were here's the atomic structure of things. And then we start to find out well, atoms aren't they're not this kind of like it's a wavy thing and you can't really see it's more like a kind of fog. And inside kind of a weird fog, there's all there's electrons and electrons and, and and protons, and then that can all be broken down and there's quarks and there's uh, and so. It's a very hard thing for me, and I think a lot of people who aren't physicists, and maybe people who are physicists, Mm -hmm. to picture what the universe is made of, what matter is, what is... So when you first start, when you're trying to create an image in in the reader's mind of what we're made of, what the universe is made of, what do you see in your head? I actually don't see the detail, and this is actually why I went for maps, because I think what it is really is a framework that you see. So when you learn a new bit, I mean, when I when I write articles and things, if you try really hard to explain an esoteric bit of physics, and um, the audience, if the reader is actually trying to, then you can pretty much do it. But the thing that distinguishes a physicist in thinking about this kind of the subatomic world and the, the quantum weirdness and all the little features of it is that you have a framework of knowledge to drop them in. Drop, drop. When you learn something new, you know where to put it. And a lot of it is just um, getting used to it, honestly. I mean, I don't actually picture what an electron looks like. I, I have um, a framework in which I understand its properties. But, but all the pictures we conjure are misleading because they're, um, they're all classical, right? Because we can't see these things directly. So, oh, sorry, keep talking. Right, can yeah. I keep talking with my yeah, tear eyes? Okay, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, so the, the, this is why I went for a map because it's more a representation of the framework in which these things sit rather than the um, rather than the individual things themselves. Because the the individual things themselves, there's no real way of talking about them accurately well, without maps. What I find interesting more and more is the idea that the whole universe, the whole world. Everything, you know, when when we start talking about the subjective, you know, I know some scientists who would who would like to to talk about an objective picture of reality, yeah. And yet, ultimately, is that ever possible within the? Are we always using yeah. metaphor? Are we using a an a, an an objective to an extent? But the idea of being able to stand so far back that you go, this is. And utterly objective is the subjective always. So I'm saying there are, are less. I think you're mixing two things up, Robin. I think you're missing mixing up accuracy with objectiveness. So we we can. I think we can. Any any picture we build is provisional and probably an approximation and probably inaccurate. But that doesn't mean it's not objective in some sense, right? I mean, you you think science is. It's not all in our heads. It's, there is an objective reality out there that we're striving to understand better. We have to accept that our striving is from a subjective point of view and it's within our own limitations. But that's what I mean. But, not necessarily that you're individually seeing a different version of the universe, but that there is, is there something which you might, is ultimately a human subjectivity, which is down to. I, I realise this is, may be a lingua, but it, to me it's interesting when I hear about yeah. the use of different metaphors that we're going, we can come up with 
what is commonly held by a large group of, of people who are experts in that field say this is the model of the universe that we currently have. But should we be aware of or how aware should we be of the possible limitations? Very, very much aware. So you're right. And I, I think it's probably a it's a, a avoiding the difficulty of language, because if you ta start talking about subjective, about it all being subjective, that does sort of imply that it's all sort of made up and everyone could have a different view. But in, in what you're saying, there is an objectivity. And if you're going to be a good scientist, then you have to be aware of your own point of view, right? And we have actually a, a, a language to talk about this. If you talk about Bayesian statistics, for instance, people talk about um, degrees of belief. So you actually try and measure, and you don't talk about um, the probability of something being right or wrong. You say, what degree of belief should I have in this thing? by belief in the scientific sense and that what's the it's, it's a way of collecting evidence together some of it sometimes indirect some of it very direct and so if it comes to something like the bayesian probability of of believing in the reality of quarks or electrons it will be extremely high and you can quantify that because you can put all the different bits of evidence together um but you start with a prior belief right so this is, in a way, you can kind of mathematically justify the sort of extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, because your prior is, that's nonsense. Uh, so imagine, you know, like when um, someone, at, at in, it's an Italian experiment, thought they'd measured neutrinos going faster than the speed of light. The Bayesian approach to that would be, I have a really high prior against that. I just mm. don't believe that. And you acknowledge that. That's a bias in a way. Now, it's a bias that's driven by data and other evidence. But in a Bayesian approach, for instance, you can factor that in as your prior but if the evidence accumulated i mean in that case it didn't they'd made a mistake but in if the evidence had accumulated in the end even if your prior was very very small and very thought it was very unlikely it bayesian stats would give you a way of modifying your belief in the light of evidence in a controlled way which is actually doing exactly what you were saying you're you're acknowledging our position in the universe as being subjective and imperfect observations and we don't have all the information. So it's a way of trying to quantify, uh, a way of making decisions and determining what you take seriously on the basis of, imp of partial information because we always have partial information. Could you, in terms of just in... in different things that we hear about the nature of the universe and that i mean the, the problem is sometimes there's areas of physics which by the number of books written about it you would imagine physics has a deep understanding of it and then in fact it turns out well no it just turns out that's a very good area currently oh, people so write that, books about the, the bits that are less well understood very often right there's not much point writing a book if it's just facts that no but what, what i mean on. is that that bit where you go because i think some people can believe that we've got further with certain bits of understanding uh -huh. about so in terms of of something that you would say to most people listening to this this is as good as we can get in terms of th th this is the way the universe is always i know i realize there's always as good as we can ever or, get yeah or? well no no as good as we currently are able to so oh, this, that. Is, this is yeah. and then on the other side of it you know if we do have things that there are things which people would say do you know what this is still we, we have no way of testing this this is an idea this is not, it, it hasn't yet got to a theory. You know, I just wonder sure. if there's a kind of, a little bit of a scale from the, go the, with this for the time being, really keep your scepticism. Uh, yeah, no, there's a, there's a huge scale and it boils down to what, what evidence, what experimental evidence, and also you might include mathematical consistency actually as part of your evidence as well. 
it, it boils down to how much of that has been accumulated. So, for instance, the content of the map on the book is, is essentially presenting what we know about subatomic physics as a landscape that we're exploring. And it, the way it works, you know, the, the everyday life and energies is on the west, and as you go further east, you're going higher in energy and you're exploring deeper and deeper into the heart of matter. Now, you can very clearly say that with the tools available, with the Large Hadron Collider, which is the furthest east we can go at the moment in that, then we, run, we, we can kind of stand on the shoreline and peer eastward and get some hazy idea what might be out there, but we don't have direct access beyond that point. Everything up to that point, we've got a lot of evidence. doesn't mean every detail of the landscape is utterly mapped out, but we pretty much know where the islands are, where the mountains are, that kind of stuff. So we know that you know, there are electrons and quarks and neutrinos and we know the forces between them. But we don't know um, other things about that, why they're there. So we don't know, for instance, why they have the masses they have and why is the neutrino so much lighter than the, the other particles, for instance. And we have ideas about that, which may be to do with the fact that the, these are not the smallest things, actually. The, if you carry on further east, you find out the electron is made of other stuff. No evidence for that at the moment, but there are ideas kicking around. And there's a whole sliding scale, really, about... It's about where you've got access to with your experiment, really. So if if you hear... I mean, a lot of the wackier ideas, you know, they come from applying these these laws that we know to cosmology, to try and understand the early universe. And you hear people talk about, you know, unifying gravity and, and quantum mechanics and string theory and M-theory and, and then this whole business of the multiverse and things. All of that is, is very far out there, right? Some of it has got some mathematical... So multiverse, for instance, that's one that we, we, we see a lot of stuff yeah. about. And it's, you know, it's, it's an idea which, of course, you know, Hollywood picks up on these kind of things. And, you know, people can come in through Philip K. Dick and where's other. So my show has been following um, God's Dice, David Baddiel's play about multiverse theory, ah. about using multiverse theory to prove the existence of uh, Christianity. Good Lord. Yeah. That sounds like a bit of a stretch. I was <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, Christianity definitely exists, though. I mean, well, to prove the existence of like things within the Bible, to like find out physics of yeah, yeah. the physics of things within the Bible. So there you go. Yeah, but the, these things, I, yeah, and I, I mean, they, they set off echoes. They set off resonances with the way we think about life, and so they're quite seductive in that way. But when, but they're not. Some of them are not science, frankly. I mean, mm. they're speculation, and there can be scientific speculation. I'm not kind of trying to diss all my colleagues with this, but we should be aware when we're talking about what we know and the boundaries of our knowledge that there are some people who overclaim, who, who, who seem claim more scientific justification for what they're saying than is really allowed. Do you have any speculations that you know the evidence is nowhere near but that you quite enjoy holding? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking the evidence might... I don't know how far the evidence is. So, <laughs> I mean, I... I I honestly, I mean, the, the the one that's top of our list now is is dark matter, right? Which, um, or top of my list anyway, which is the idea that, that there's either either we've, we're missing eighty percent of the mass of the universe, or we've got gravity wrong, um, because we can tell this from the way the galaxies move, actually. So it's it's really not, you know, like it's a, what keeps um, when you're spinning something, you spin, say you're spinning a. Yeah. Um, 
what do you spin around Carry your a bag on the end of your finger. Yeah, or a brick on a string. I just think, <laughs> why would I be doing that? But never mind. Um, you know, when you're spinning a brick on a string, you know. <laughs> the string has to... get you a Kestrel, John. We've got you something even better. A lovely brick, it'll live longer. Yeah. Your brother string. can't kill it and no put it in a bin. No one can it. Kez, the brick version. Yeah. Brought to you by so, um, but uh, the, the point was, is that there was a point actually mm. to the brick on the string, which is if you spin it fast enough, the string will break. In other words, there's a maximum force the string can exert to keep it going round. With galaxies, it's gravity that provides that force and keeps the stars going round as the galaxy rotates. And at the moment, it looks like there isn't enough gravitational force to do that. So we either postulate more matter, so more force, which means that matter, or we've got gravity just wrong. My speculation is I would like to think that gravity is wrong, although the vast, overwhelming um, consensus of my community is that gravity is fine and it's that matter that's missing. Because all my life, if if somebody had asked me what, what has felt taught to me as truth is that dark matter that's most of the universe we don't know what it is bad luck yeah but the idea that that there was always a second option which was oh we fucked up yeah, yeah. it's quite um it's quite exciting yeah yeah this but you've got to modify einstein's general relativity and it described it turns out einstein was pretty clever right so sure. I don't, so took a while for him to get that yeah it's quite hard to change general relativity to get that bit right without messing up all the other things that it already gets right if you know I mean. do you have I any just incredibly tuning in came in late somehow and believe that the brick on the string is something to do with string theory <laughs> and that they've now entirely misread the... Yeah, it's very specific to string and bricks. Yeah. Brick on a yeah, string yeah, theory. Yeah. Um, do you have a... This, this is me, like, and I appreciate I'm a layman and I'm coming in a silly way, but do you have any students who are, like, working on that right now and in 10 years it could all break through? Like, how do you feel about the way things are going in physics and what um, the next 10 years will look like? It's an exploration. So I don't, I'm not a theorist, I'm an experimentalist, so I don't have students working on, on modifying gravity, but I do have plenty of students looking for dark matter. So mm. I, maybe you could say that I'm, I'm leading them up the garden path. But <laughs> <some> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, go on I think, I think probably dark matter is there, and I really have serious hope that we will discover what it is during my career, or at least during my lifetime. Um, so that, But where we are with <laughs> physics now is actually pretty cool, because... Um, and it's quite and it's quite scary. And again, this is actually back to the map that for my whole career we've had a sort of map laid out from the theorists. That is, you know, go look here, you'll find the Higgs. Go here, sort out this thing with the neutrinos. And it, actually, when I started, we haven't even found the top quark. So it's like go and find the top quark. So, and we've built experiments, and they've been right every time. And actually, the Higgs in particular was really impressive because it's a it's a unique object and a completely different prediction from our mathematical ideas. But no more. There's no more predictions. So the theorists don't have a solid prediction for what dark matter is. Um, they don't have a solid prediction for why there aren't equal amounts of matter and antimatter in the universe, because there should be, from a priori. Naively, you would think there would be. They're obviously not true. So we're off this map for the first time. It's almost like, you know, we've had a little roadmap that was sketched out for us that we didn't know whether to trust it, but we could use it as a guide. And, and we built, you know, built our experiments using that as a guide at some level. No, we've no guide. We've got some open questions, but not a very good map. But isn't that really astonishing that at the same time that that is happening within physics, you could arguably say that it's happening within politics, you could arguably say it's happening within climate science, you could arguably ha- say that it's happening all around the world. And like, Obviously, I'm not trying to be spooky or s- mm. uh, sentimental, but what an interesting time to be a part of where everyone in their own place is going, what the... F- 
how yeah. happens next? No, it's true. Although with politics, I tend to think we might be just going round in a loop, and I hope we're not heading back to the middle of the 20th century. But it does look kind of a bit. Oh, the middle weird. of the 20th century is better. 1948, yeah, lovely. Yeah, yeah. If you get the 50, oh, okay, you start at the middle. <laughs> yeah, 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 not yeah. too bad. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. No, okay, the first third would be. It would but does be. that? That's an interesting because is that one of the unfortunate things with science in not science itself but public understanding of science which is uh you know i've read books which have started off by saying even science says that everything's uncertain right and and, and you go well hang on you, yes, really no, it says there's always say. doubt yeah. and you're using the theory of uncertainty, uncertainty principle and you think that but which is that the the negative side is not that because rather I, I think very often what and again not science but the, the public understanding of science which yeah. is if scientists aren't even sure and you go no 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 they're they're the ones most likely to not be sure is, but to have a model which says this is the least wrong. This is back to what you said at the beginning, right? Actually, one of the key things about science is you haven't made a measurement until you've put the error bars on it, and so you've made put, made an estimate of how certain that measurement is. And that I think that's probably what you were coming in at with this, this subjective. It's not whether it's subjective, it's not or not. It's a matter of um, degree of knowledge, degree of certainty, degree of belief, if you like. And you need to be able to quantify that, and you need to be able to try and take your own biases into account on that as well. Which is why we have whole protocols like you know um, control experiments and things like this, and blinding, blinding ourselves of the data until the very last minute, so that we design our whole study without biasing, uh, <laughs> putting our prejudices into the analysis, you know. God, I wish that people were as thorough in the rest of the world. Yeah, yeah. It must be I, really I wish scientists were as thorough in their everyday <laughs> lives. Well, there we go. But, that is, but, yeah. but I do think it's an intro because that, what's sometimes, I think it's part of the narrative, which is negatively, again, I'm not saying that the, the act of science itself, but the understanding sometimes, which leads to, what it should lead to, is people with doubt. Yeah. And instead what it leads to is people going, well, Everything's doubtful. Thus, I'm going to totally believe this, oh, and you yes. go, "Oh no, that's and that's." Or it's it, just as bad if you if you absolutely believe nothing, and you think all things are equal. You're as you're as ignorant as someone who believes everything. I mean, it's, both are just extreme forms of stupidity, basically, extremely gullible or or extremely or overly sceptical that you don't accept any evidence for anything is just as stupid as accepting everything with no evidence behind it at all. It's like that great story in, in the introduction of sceptical essays, Bertram Russell, where I can't remember which famous uh, sceptic it was who uh, has his head stuck in a ditch and uh, his student walks past I wish because, I read this, because so, yeah. he can't be certain whether his um, tutor would actually like to have his head pulled out of the ditch, he just leaves him there. Right. Yeah, you know, so that, that's... And, and I, I think that is, yeah, that, that bit where you go, because uh, I, I, what I like is, for instance, Robert Anton Wilson wrote The Cosmic Trigger and various mm. other things, yeah. He believed in a kind of universal agnosticism, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean that you have equal doubt. It means that you approach everything and go, well, Absolutely. this I think so. And I, I think that is a very, that can be a very useful position. It means you need to remain more active as well, because yeah. you need to keep updating. That's why I sure. think people don't live their lives like that, actually, because it's hard work. And you've mm. got to be, in practice, what we do is we, we make some working assumptions and then we try treat them as certainties, as facts of nature. And that works pretty well most of the time if you've chosen your assumptions right. But with something like climate change, like you mentioned before, I mean, we're not 100% certain about it. And it, that shouldn't be casting doubt on, this climate, on the science of climate change. Where, I mean, we know, it's like we, we know, the, we have a huge amount of evidence of, of what's going on. Mm -hmm. And we have every reason to think this is overwhelmingly the Litsis is Bayesian belief. Oh, all I meant when I was talking about that was people aren't sure how it will manifest. Yeah, exactly. They're sure it will manifest. But, yeah, and we, they're we're, not sure. And, they're so, so, and also, they're not sure 
how best to tackle it and uh, absolutely and yeah. not listen to if they no and, and it's, it's the encouraging thing about that although it's happening too late uh, well, I hope it's not too late but it's very slow is um, the people are you do see arabans on these things you see uncertainties discussed mm. properly right and and it's like you can say well we're not if you say and we're not going to do anything about climate change until we're 100% sure. You say, well, what if we're 99.9% sure? And if and you're banking on that one in a million chance, or one in a thousand chance, that, you, that it's going to save the world. I mean, you don't behave like that in normal life. You take precautions. Well, and also, it's like saying... Uh, oh, uh, there's no need for an analogy. Basically, <laughs> if, people do, if people do follow different you know, ways to make us uh, more sustainable, ways to reverse... Uh, carbon emissions. The worst case scenario is everyone's a bit healthier, but perhaps things didn't. You, do you know what I mean? It's not a case yeah. of like. Well, I see that. Then there's that bother. I'm not sure about that oh, because okay. that's where you make it. But I mean, I agree with you basically because that's. I, I think most of the measures that are proposed would probably be to the benefit of society. Yeah. But that's much more of a political or moral judgment. Whereas, whereas I think. The, and I think that's where it becomes right v left and things. I mean, it, this is why. Um, I mean, if you and I agree that that a world with with um, fewer cars, for instance, would be a better place, which I, I certainly do. Yeah. Um, that's a political judgment. That's not intrinsically tied to climate change, right? You should be able to make a. It's it's an impact. Well, with fewer it. petrol cars, we could start with. Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, and you. I, I guess what I'm saying is we should. You're building in a certain set of prayers about what you think a better society would sure, look like. Definitely. And that and I, I kind of agree with your prayers probably as well, but climate change is bigger than that because it's an oncoming train that's gonna kill everyone, whether they're right or left, if we're not careful. And that's different from you could you could concoct different ways of meeting that challenge, some of which would be more acceptable to people on the right than the left, right? Sure, but when yeah, I suppose but I, I feel like what I've read is that most of the ways to tackle it do have to involve like Solutions that are like radically overhauling capitalism, so it's like people on the right. Sort I, I'm of not can't. saying I disagree with you, and in, in the end, it, it needs collective action, which is an anathema to the free market, yeah, exactly. anyway. So, but but nevertheless, I there's a cartoon, you know, it says, "What if it's all wrong and, and we've made the world a better place yeah, by mistake?" I but I think that's a really damaging cartoon because that makes that makes the people who, on the right that who are, who are who don't agree that the world would be a better place with all these things think that this is just a scam in order to, for us to make the world a better place. And actually, it's about saving civilization. It's not about making it better. It can be about making it better, too. But do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah no, I agree. It interests it's, me. I, I think that's right. I, I agree, actually, which is that yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with both. But ultimately, the thing you, you're right in saying is the point is we're not going to be doing it because, oh, look, at least we made the world a better place. It really does have the body of evidence behind it that says, so I think sometimes if you go with that argument, it's as if to go, we're still not really that sure, but we're going to make things nicer. Right. It's going, no, it really is happening. It may not, all the models may not be perfect. May, you know, we, we, yeah, we, we see we it. I mean, this year, I think, is one of the mm. first years that I've seen a reasonable number of scientists when we have seen aberrations in what we might consider to be... Normality. Where, yeah, 
mm. the, 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 the behaviour around us, uh, where they actually do go, this has happened because yeah. of the speed in which so it's climate the num- is changing. Because it's the number. You can never say that with any one event, but you can say, we said you'd get more of these, yeah. you're getting more of these, are. that's what's happening, It's now. this is real now. And yeah. the scale as well, yeah. when, you, when you look at the like fires that have gone from that Does, big to that big, yeah. I appreciate we're Does in audio good, medium. But, what's he called, that teacher who did that thing, what's the worst that could happen, which is quite a, a useful philosophical mm-hmm. book, which just kind of looks at all the different uh, possibilities, where they go. And I think it's quite a useful first, it's like starting point to, he, he started off with a YouTube thing, which he made with his class, I think, about, you know, what's all the right. worst could happen. And they just built and built and built. And then he wrote a book basically looking at different kind of, you know, ways that we, we can measure the possibilities. And when you come up with going, we remain, we cannot be certain, but this direction is the direction which has the least possibility of damage to us all. You know, yeah. that kind of thing, yeah. which is... Um, so how do you think... I, we weren't going to necessarily talk about it, but but... We do now have a surprising number of... Uh, oh, Greg Craven, by the way, has popped up on the screen. That's the name of the guy who did What's the Worst Could Happen, Greg Craven. Um, how can we get more politicians? Because it's, it's, it's shocking, I think, within Australia, for instance, uh, within, oh, within God, the US, within the UK, where we have quite vibrant science communities. Yeah. And yet we also have increasingly noisy, I think, uh, and increase people who do not believe mm-hmm. that the, the human contribution to the speed of climate change is, is, uh, is, is real. And they have positions of power. And, I mean, in this coming election, or maybe the election may have gone by, by that, but, but there are people who are standing in seats who go, well, I don't really think that. I think that's a bit of old nonsense, and half of them are it? standing in seats that are flooded already. Yeah. That's the yeah. really bizarre part is that Yeah, I, do I wish that. I had an answer, right? I mean, I, I, I think... I think. I mean, I think the politicians will, in the end, follow. There are two kind of politician who deny scientific evidence, right? They're the ones who don't understand it, and the ones who know quite well that they're lying, and they're lying because they think it's in their political interest to lie about it. And it's hard to tell the difference between them sometimes, right? And the the ones that are really stupid, there's a there's a chance, right? Because you can. You, I say stupid, they're ignorant maybe, they've just chosen not to look at these things carefully and you can persuade, the, you know, the, they will follow the public in the end, if the public are telling them this is a problem so then then you can do it the more worrying ones are the ones who actually know, know damn well it's all happening and it's all real but they don't think it's in their interest to do anything about it because it's all too far in the future or they're, they're quite prepared to gamble on what they perceive as the the chance that it'll turn out all right for them, even if it doesn't turn out all right for the vast majority of people. What's the worst tweet I've ever read, which was Andrew Lillico saying, do we really have more of a responsibility to fight climate change than we do to make sure that our children are wealthy enough to survive it? And I was like, cool, thanks for well, exposing th- the dark heart of all of what you... Well, this this is this is there. This is one of the things that's going on at the moment. This is the, the rise of white supremacism and things as well. Like, there's a lot of this behind it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who are not trying to save the human race. They're tooling up to save themselves. Eco-fascism versus, e- eco-fascism versus eco-socialism. Like, that's what... And, and it's really interesting because I suppose... I do think that there is a degree of opportunism, like in a positive way, mm-hmm. when I think of like fighting climate change, I do think, wow, this is a way to make our society fairer mm-hmm. and it is useful and stuff like that. And I do recognise that's political, but at the same time, it's really <coughs> hard for me to think anything other than this is the only right way. So yeah. well, I, I think the do. thing that's missing and is there's this, this idea which goes quite deep in a certain way of political thinking. Which is it's almost like the, the 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 invisible hand of the market is that if you everyone does everything at random, 
then in the end, the best thing will happen because of some kind of evolutionary thing. And, well, it, it might do, but you've got to choose what you think by best. And it might be best for planet Earth if we all destroy ourselves in the next 100 years or so and it carries on with another go. It doesn't mean that, you know, what... what it's for the good of humanity. Yeah, you know, something will happen. I don't think we're going to destroy the Earth, right? I mean, the, 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 with climate change, it, it will go. It will be a, another disruption of, of the like of which it's had many in its history. But it might come out of it with no human beings left. Yeah, that's Which what George Carlin said. Stop, <laughs> stop saying we're saving the planet. We're not. We're saving, we're saving our ourselves. Fucking selves. Exactly. And if we can't be smart enough to act collectively, now that we have technologies that we know are global in their reach and global in their impact, for yeah. good or bad, that's the point at which you have to start acting like a coordinated species and using your collective brains rather than just fighting village against village. The people who run YouTube need to be tried for <laughs> genocide or war crimes. <laughs> the, uh, every single day that goes on, the more I'm like, YouTube, you've ruined, you've ruined the world. You've ruined the world. Just because you would not be slightly on it about who was abusing your platform. You've I wouldn't, yeah. I mean, I, the thing is the peer-to-peer aspects of social media were kind of overdue, right? Because we know that we've been affecting each other across continents for centuries actually and more and more increasingly but the but the communications were all in con- all controlled by a very small number of people diplomats and things initially which is probably maybe a good thing but now we have the peer-to-peer thing then that's left it open to all kinds of good and bad things uh, and and manipulation and and mob mentality and things and maybe we're maybe we'll assimilate that properly in society at some point maybe that's what we're doing now but you know time's short just talk. We'll, we'll move on. Just talk about, about your most recent yeah, book. Sorry. Smashing atoms looked at the Large Hadron Collider. Map of the Invisible. Smashing what, physics. It was smashing physics. Why yeah. do I think who's smashing atoms? Oh, that's what we all do, really. But yeah. I, I don't know if there's a book called that. <laughs> oh, well, I'll write it then. Um, but what, why did you decide Map of the Invisible was going to be the next one that you wanted to do? I mean, you can see why Smashing Physics was going to, you know, because that was yeah. at, at, at a that was time kind of a memoir of a very exciting time. Mm. But but there were lots of bits and pieces in in the, the previous book, and also when I used to write for the Guardian. Where say you you, this is, you say you used to write to go up for the Guardian. This is one of the sad things I think, which is we should should mention because that's one of the things cosmic shambles. We do, that if we do ever make money on on book shambles, it doesn't. None of it goes into our pocket. It goes into trying to play to pay uh, science writers who used to be at the Guardian. Yes. and it seems to me such an interesting thing that the Guardian science blogs at a time where sh- we need more evidence based thinking. It, no, yeah, that, that, surprising. That was... It's surprising. Yeah, I was taken aback by that. I think, in principle, could write for, you know, they'd be happy to take pieces from us. I think still, but um, somehow the immediate access of a kind of blog style thing, where it was was very, it was the only way I actually managed to get writing things. But I enjoy writing for Cosmic Shambles now, so that's good. But I, um, I did like. I mean, that's why I, I like the fact that the, these blogs were just. You, it, it could be so immediate. There was no yeah, ring up and that, you know exactly. the commissioning and blah blah blah. Exactly. Whether it was you, Dean Burnett, you know, a lot of different people out there, and and I think that is. We we still seem to when I pick up newspapers, which is not very very rarely in fact, but I look and I go, it's such a fascinating thing to see how little science there is there, mm-hmm. and therefore that's why if it's not in popular culture, and I don't yeah. think I don't think it's it as much in popular culture as when Einstein toured the country, you know, and did his lectures and, and no. those kind of things. I I, I I think it's a much easier part to go. That's not really the. There's thing a that demand for it, all right. So actually, and this is where the map thing came from, actually, because writing these bits and pieces, you do, I'm explaining little little islands and little areas on on a bigger map, and the bigger map is in my head. And and it, when people would ask me, how do these things all fit together? What can I read? 
and there wasn't that book there. So that's what this was supposed to be. And the maps, by the way, they're drawn by um, Chris Wormall, who's the guy who illustrates Philip Pullman's books. Now. Ah. So I, you know, I got the guy who illustrates Philip Pullman to draw physics out of Didn't my head. did you do the fish fantastic. came out of the sea as well? Did Isn't the, that one of his? Yes, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Quick, look it up on the magic screen. Chris Wormall. <laughs> yeah, he, uh, I've got, I think I've got a few of his picture books. Some very yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. Kind of woodcut-style uh, illustrations. Yeah, are really gorgeous. nice. It was such a pleasure to work with him. I mean, didn't know any physics. I presumably does now. But, you know, he was, it was a bit out of his comfort zone. But he, he, it was absolutely perfect what he did. That's also one, one of the things I was really pleased with. When, when did the New Statesman with, with Brian Cox uh, for a Christmas issue. And I got Ralph Steadman to do the Large Hadron oh, Collider. Yeah. And, yes. and it was like he was like, oh, I don't really want to do it. And then, and the editor actually said, uh, I'm all oh, getting contact with him because he's always happy to sell his stuff. And then, unfortunately, in the act of doing it, he'd fallen in love with it, and therefore he couldn't sell me the art. Damn, I drawn him. But but that I, I love those those kind of you know whether you want to call them two culture moments or mm-hmm. not. And, and I think there's a lot of very interesting illustrators, cartoonists, comic book people who are doing uh, you know fantastic things. Where if the scientist goes to him and went, um, you know this is Natalie K. Thatcher. I don't know if you know Natalie K. Thatcher yeah, who's illustrated Natalie, a few yeah. books, and Natalie she did that. We, we were there, weren't we? Yeah, we, we were there together. It, she it drew was, a picture of yeah. me drinking a beer. Or yeah, it's, it's uh, this this wonderful exhibition of how artists had reacted to various different ideas of physics. And she's a bit she she's done a lovely book, How to Build a Feynman, about Richard Feynman and and uh, yeah. Universe and a Glass of Wine oh, and various of other I know ones. That book. The uh, um, One Smart Fish. That's the Chris Werbel one, which I I particularly like. By the way, that's gone up on the magic screen as well. So cool. And it's it's about a fish that basically goes, "What am I doing? Still living in the sea?" <laughs> and, There's something uh, about the nature of of those. And the style of those maps that is like such a kind of resonant call to the imagination. You see that, and you're reminded of so much kind of like um, children's literature and stuff like that. But the idea of like unexplored maps—that's it. That's exactly it. I wanted to get the exploration idea because, to me, in my mind, that's what we're doing, right? Yeah. There's too much of of trying to find a theory of everything or trying to prove X or Y. What we're really doing is exploring the universe with the limits of the instrumentation we can build and the limits of our, our, our mathematical and, and evidence-building capabilities. Mm. And it, But in the end, it's an exploration. And the maps, I, I agree with you, I think the maps really, that was what they were for, really, was yeah. to get that across. I just love that whole thing that, you know, the areas that say, here be dragons, get further <laughs> and further away. No, we found out there's yeah, no dragons, no dragons here. Yeah, yeah. Might still be dragons here. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've only got a few minutes left, so I want to talk a little bit about what... what Science. I mean, I know you read a lot beyond science as well, obviously, mm-hmm. because that's your, your your work. And that, but um, who are the uh, authors at the moment that you think are you know? I mean, I, I'm I bang on about quite a lot, but I'm I'm looking forward to the next book from Jan Levin. I think Jan Levin yeah. writes where uni- how the universe got its spots, and then she wrote Black Hole Blues, and rather a, a novel as well, which I, f- I forget that uh, uh, not playing with Einstein, but there's a mm-hmm. yeah she. Um, uh, who are the who are the authors for those people again like like me and Josie who are who are not physicists who you think ah oh, they really do manage to draw people into uh, this this world? Ooh, you know I I, I avoid I avoid um, reading too much popular. You science. do, I know, I know. Um, well, no, you won't really. I tell you, no, because it's my job, and I, <laughs> I, I, I came here prepared with all of these novels. Yeah, this is not novels. Do novels? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no novels. I will say, Philip. Uh, so beyond weird. Um, oh, Philip. Oh, Philip Ball. Yeah, Philip Ball. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I'm terrible with names. I like, I like his stuff. I, I, I like the way he writes. I think he's got. Because he's he's very he's very knowledgeable about physics, but he's outside of it. He manages to step back. So I get a bit tired of physicists writing about their own stuff, 
which is obviously what I do. But I, I don't want to read more of that. I, I want I can read that the actual papers for that. You know, I think Philip Ball's got a new one coming out soon as well. But yeah. Beyond Weird there was a lovely thing we did. Uh, unfortunately, the, the the recording ended up being so shit. In fact, I'll mention it now because if you if people would like us to put out this recording, which when I say shit is not due to the content, it's due to the actual recording itself. Okay. We had uh, Philip and Alan Moore together wow. in uh, Northampton, the old Labour Club there, and what was beautiful was sat down there and almost immediately you could see Philip looking at Alan going not only has he read the book in its entirety clearly he's understood the book and all of its ramifications you know there was this moment Ah. where you could just see him going whoa this is going to be this isn't just um and I do think Philip is yeah his his critical mass I think was one of his his most right. successful books as well. Right. Um, also, I I always think John Gribbin hasn't won enough prizes. I think John Gribbin for those out, out there who's, who's written about so many different ideas. He, he, John Gribbin definitely featured in my university applications as, as you know treating such a Schrodinger's cat and stuff. Yeah, I'd read all that. Yeah, he's great. So novels, who have you been been reading? Um, I read. Oh, now I'm going to forget the name of the author oh. again. But it was uh, All That Man Is by uh, David someone. Yeah, David Zlasny, right? David Zlasny, which is like not really a novel, I think, but it's it's kind of nine interlinked stories about the stages, ages of of men. Actually, it is about men. It's about masculinity at some level, um, and it's uh, it starts with a seventeen year old and finishes with a seventy five year old, and and it takes in you know estate agents and and Russian billionaires and. Uh, kids on on interrailing and, and and all the way through, and I found that I, I really liked it a lot um, because because it's my birthday on Wednesday and I'm thinking about where I am in that spectrum, I guess. But but um, you should go interrailing. Yeah. Well, you still can. I never do. Yeah, I know. I, I can't. I'm not allowed anymore. I think I'm too old for that. I know I look good, but it's just not. <laughs> <laughs> well, the idea that I'm pitching you at 19, I'm like this guy before you turn 20. The um, um I, I find it. Douglas Adams talked about when someone asked him why he didn't read fiction anymore. He said because fiction used to be used to kind of explore ideas that we didn't really. So it's especially in things like psychology and science, you know, in the 19th century, mm-hmm. you would get authors like George Eliot, etc. They're exploring ideas. Um, and then there's science fiction writing and H.G. Wells and the like. And But now we actually have the non-fiction that covers yeah. those things. Yeah. And yet I now do feel that... Uh, because I, I read a lot of non-fiction for a long period of time and I've really made myself in the last couple of years read a lot more novels mm. and I found out that Douglas Adams was wrong <laughs> because I still think when you read novels about certain ideas there is a way that the storytelling allows you to open up and be steered towards a lot of different ideas in the real world yeah. and, and of, of human reality and that, that, that it hasn't, you know, the, the idea, because I, I, I don't know what the disparity is, you know, in, in those who read non-fiction and those who read more fiction, you know, because there are some people who only read books. You know, I always disappointed when I go to second-hand book fairs and I go, fucking hell, 30 of these stools are just, here's another thing that Phil Marshall Montgomery did. Oh, God. Here's another thing about, this is a big book of historical tanks. Yeah, and there's right. so oh, much worst. of that, that kind of stuff. We, I, I realised I was reading too much non-fiction, uh, or not enough fiction is probably the best way of putting it. And we, we a bunch of us we have a little book club now that we did we set up to do that so and and I I find it really it really makes me read things that I wouldn't have otherwise read and I think just to bring it back to subjectivity for me the thing is it puts you in someone else's head in a way that non-fiction never does so I also read Americana um, was uh, um, 
And again, I'm terrible it's, at names, um, uh, authors, but anyway. I've done Lalillo, isn't it? No, no, no. It was Chimamanda. Uh, yeah. I can't remember her surname. This is so frustrating. Yeah. I've got it in my house. I've infected you with my inability. Chimamanda on the screen. Anyway, it put, you in, it put you in the head of, a, of, of someone who's completely different life from me, but there were points of contact and, and, you, and it was well enough written that you really see and the same with this this um, book I've just read there's nine nine times you put in the head of a different person for each yeah. chapter and it's just fantastic and and it, it lets you see familiar things in the world from an unfamiliar point of view I guess and I, I, I it's a very naive way of describing fiction but that that's what I don't get from non-fiction and that, that I really like getting from fiction well, well again I... a book that we've mentioned a lot Charles Fernhoff's uh, um, the thing that he the anthology he did um, uh, yeah. others all about different kind of uh, um, where each one is a, it's a, it might be a poem or a story or an essay yeah. non-fiction piece whatever and it's all about giving you the perspective from someone's individual who, which is a life not like yours and to realise you know people with all manner of different yeah. conditions and you know um, it's yes. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie that's I, correct I that's should have remembered my brain is so crap no it's been um, doing but I, think me, it, I think it's been on excellent form today oh thank you but I, for me I, as I'm well, going to have to go now because yeah, you've I've got, got go. 220 students waiting to right. Hear about courier analysis. So, thank you. Let me. I've just had a it's message from them. They said it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> They'll see <laughs> you in the Costa at five. <laughs> yeah. It's much appreciated. Thanks very much, yeah, John Butterworth. His uh, book, Map of the Invisible, Journeys into uh, Particle Physics, is available now. Uh, Josie Long is currently, on, or will be very soon, on tour. Go and check out uh, her um, new show. That's across the whole of the UK. Tender. And we'll be doing Please also come. a show together at the Albert Hall uh, called Sea Shambles in May next year. And uh, my book is still available on Audible and things like that. I'm a joke and so are you. Bye. Bye thank you for listening thank you for your support on patreon uh patreon.com slash bookshambles to support the show you can also support the show by rating it five stars on apple podcasts or just sharing it on your various social media platforms we hope to see you at the Compendium of Reason at Hammersmith Apollo tomorrow, if you're listening to this on the day of release, or perhaps at Nine Lessons and Carols the following week at King's Place. Have a great week. Don't forget to check out Helen Chersky's Sea Shambles Advent Calendar at Cosmic Shambles as well. We will speak to you again soon. Bye. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Thank you.